there's something about the fact that if you go down the list of really amazing, like the, the companies that you admire the most and look at them all, the founder is there. And, um, and I feel like you can never really replace the fact that the founder is always the spiritual core or center of that business. So welcome to Outliers. This is a podcast with Outliers and I'm really excited today to sit down with uh, Samir Gandhi who is a partner with Axel, uh, someone I've been wanting to meet uh, all through my assignments over the years. Thank you Samir for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's very nice to meet you and I'm uh, excited to be here to have this conversation with you. Nice. Uh, so, why do I think Samir is an outlier? I think that <laughs> question needs to be answered. Uh, you know, I, I believe from whatever little I have, I've, I've tracked uh, about what you do uh, is you have had a front row seat in in some of the most respected and scaled startups of today that we know of, from Dropbox to DJI, Spotify. Uh, you have helped shape outliers. <laughs> That makes you an outlier for sure. <laughs> but more importantly, uh, the reason I wanted to have this conversation is to learn from those journeys that you have watched. And uh, hopefully, people who are listening uh, would uh, gain from them. <laughs> so thanks for joining. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. I like your outliers um, title. Uh, we, you know, in, in Excel, we call them originals, but I think we use, we're using it the same way. <laughs> Outliers or originals, yeah. <laughs> uh, just to uh, get into this conversation with you and help people understand who you really are and where you come from, uh, tell me where you come from, Samir, and, and give, give, give me a sense of uh, uh, how did you really get into all this? What were you doing when you were not doing this? Well, I, you know, I've been investing in entrepreneurs and startups for 20 years, and it today is as exciting and fresh as it was when I started. And uh, it's hard to imagine doing anything else. You know, that, that's, um, that's when you know you're lucky, when you found a, uh, you know, a, when you found work that doesn't seem like work and it's, uh, it's really just exciting to be, be a part of it. And you, know, it's, you have the, really the good fortune to be doing something that you just love doing. But um, I, you know, I didn't really know about this career and I got into it accidentally. You know, I grew up in, I grew up in the United States and went to school and studied engineering and, and uh, worked at a tech company that was like a startup. And that's kind of when I started to feel like maybe, maybe I would always do startups and went to business school and then thought maybe I should work on a lot of startups, not just one. <laughs> and, the, and the venture career became a uh, intriguing possibility. And uh, the, the, literally the, when I first started doing this, I knew I'd found a thing I was gonna do basically forever, you know, as long as I was working on anything. And then the only question was, was, was I good enough to be able to do it long enough? <laughs> yeah, okay. I think that, that good enough or not is, is that I think beyond, beyond proven now. But uh, let's now start by looking at the journeys you have seen when it comes to some of the more famous startups or maybe some of the, them that we don't know about. 
but if we could start with, for example, Dropbox, uh, what do you think uh, made it work uh, from what you saw? Was it Jerusalem or the idea or the technology, timing? You know, a lot of time is spent on analyzing these variables that go behind building a startup. But if you were to start with uh, the Dropbox journey itself, what are some of the things that you believe made it what it is today? It's um, it's such an extraordinary story that the company is 11 years old. You know, and so um, if you think about two people in their early 20s starting something 11 years ago, and today it's a you know 12 or 13 billion dollar business valued business. How does that happen in such a short period of time? It's a, it's an incredible story, um, one which I'm lucky to have been able to have seen and and you know some and participated in. And uh, yeah, there's so many different factors along the way. I mean, over a period of time that long, um, there's moments along the way where one thing or another would have determined the outcome or the trajectory of that business. But I think if you take a real step back and say like, what is it that always made that company from the beginning have a certain unique or special feel, uh, it really comes down to, you know, really the two founders and their relationship and their trust in each other, which is Drew and Arash. You know, when I invested first in the company, it was, it was just the two of them. And um, they were trying to start a business at a time when many startups prior to them had tried to do cloud or file-based storage, you know, file storage in the cloud and failed miserably. And even while they were starting Dropbox, there were others that were starting new companies to do the exact same thing at the same time. You know, in the time I met them, when they were starting the business, I met five or six others at that time. And, and so you're like, why, you know, why would they succeed when every, you know, the landscape was littered with failures? And I had, in the first meeting, probably 20 minutes in, just the moment we're saying, like, that, the thing they were trying to solve for was right. It's just that everybody had taken the wrong approach and didn't have the right skill set, the right idea about it, and they had taken a very fresh view on it, and it came across in 20 minutes. And then within 20 minutes, you knew that the two of them were operating at a different level of just insight. And then they had both intellectual capacity and horsepower, but also um, you know, just the, the skills to be able to deliver on that. You know, just really great, obviously they're both MIT engineers, so you knew that they were pretty phenomenal, beyond what even most people think about in terms of how smart they were. But then, just the attention to detail, the insights, the approach they were taking. You know, their first slide deck even talked about, you know, the business model being freemium, which no one had ever done in 2007. It just seemed like a crazy idea. And they managed to make that work. So it was just really, really just, these two individuals, and then when you sit back and say, it's still the same founding team that's there, the guy who was the CEO day one is the CEO today, the founder is the CEO, that's how you get special companies. And then, you know, along the way, building a great management team, having a phenomenal culture, always having incredible products, and being never losing sight of that, being super connected to customers, there were so many of those things along the way that were really uh, critical factors, but it comes down to, Sometimes you just get a sense of somebody that's very intangible, and uh, and you know that 
there's a special quality there that is going to make them and that company have a chance to stand out. And then you need some luck in other things along the way. <laughs> uh, it's one thing to start, and clearly with great founders, the ones that you're talking about, but uh, it, it's quite another thing to uh, grow it and, and scale and make a product that is understood and bought by people across the globe. That fascinates, uh, that's more fascinating about Dropbox and many other such companies. So what do you think of, of those journeys? I mean, are there struggles? What makes or break? Well, I think when people look at that, and it's not just Dropbox, we look at Spotify or other kinds of companies. You know, but all, um, Spotify is another great example. Both companies started in a, at a time and place when nobody thought that product would ever work as a business. Right? You know, there, was a, there was a desire for the product, but no one could think of a way to, to make the business around selling that product work. And, you know, um, some of the luck and timing for Dropbox was one very simple thing, Amazon Web Services. So now, instead of having to build a data center and spend a lot of money, you could try a lot of things with a little bit of capital and test your product and figure out the right thing. Um, and then ultimately, you know, when you understood that that product would really work in the marketplace and people wanted it, you could invest behind that. But before, it would just take so much money just to get to that point. So it was like things like that. AWS, if it wasn't there a couple years earlier, Dropbox couldn't have happened. You know, mobile devices made the access to your stuff, your information. Mm -hmm you know, possible, but then made it really clunky when it was sitting on your desktop. So like, you need some sort of cloud-based file storage layer. And so when, you know, when the iPhone came out, which by the way, was the same summer that Dropbox started, um, it, it was a big driver of the need, you know. Um, so there are a lot of things like that. But I think when you look at those, those companies, they, um, people think that there was a very linear journey to success, but they iterated, and there were lots of periods when it didn't look like it was gonna work at all. And that's a little bit lost in history, you know, that you say, like, you know, the worry moment where you're like, is this company ever going to work? Like, this, we tried everything and nothing is working, right? That these, these moments happen. And, and you have both those, these those companies, moments? Those yeah. moments happen. And then we're like, well, let's try something else. And then eventually um, each one found a formula that worked. And I think the, the magic of these two companies, not only fantastic products and founders that really, really sweated the details on products, but they built really innovative methods to distribute those products. So Dropbox, you know, really pioneered this idea that you could put a product out there and someone in a business could just start using it for free and then find so much value in it that they would pay and then eventually more people in that company would pay and then the business would say, we should be using this and then they would pay. And all that's done without any marketing, no salespeople, just organically. And that was an incredibly powerful concept, this idea of an organic growth engine to sell software, right? And uh, now many people have followed that and have tried to emulate it, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And I would tell you that that's something that, you know, Dropbox didn't happen day one. It was a lot of trial and error and attempts, and then it kind of, you know, it eventually clicked. And that was a big part of the secret of the success. Otherwise, if you had to go sell Dropbox or advertise for it, the business would never have worked. So this idea of being very organic and having a freemium model that could grow sort of on its own 
was a big part of the success. And then Spotify is not that dissimilar. If, you know, think about when that company started, every music service before that had failed miserably. And uh, either been sued out of existence or just economically was unviable. And um, interestingly enough, at roughly, a couple years later, but at roughly the same time, they were the first licensed digital music service to actually create a true freemium model. Not a trial to pay, but a true free, free tier that was fully licensed with the record labels. And that enabled consumers to start to use this new kind of service, which was interactive music streaming, not downloads and, and MP3s, and do it in a way where they got comfortable with it for free, and then they found value in subscribing over time. And when we invested in Spotify, to me, having seen Dropbox, I was a big fan of the idea of, hey, music services can finally work if there's an ability to do freemium. And it took Spotify a lot of years to figure out how to invent the freemium business model um, for music streaming, and that ultimately led to, it was a big part of the success um, you know, of that, uh, that business. And even today, that's fundamentally how that business operates. So it's a um, really, really sort of, you know, these early days of just uh, figuring out not things just around product, but just you know, from a more holistic sense, how are these business, businesses going to work in the most efficient manner? And a lot of it is very intricately tied with building great products, but getting great products in the hands of the ultimate end user or consumer in a very disrupted fashion. I think that one line captures it well. You also seem to be talking a lot about the sense of detailing that these founders have uh, for, for them to build products or companies like these. Uh, you know, people talk about entrepreneurs who are either engineers or, or designers. Uh, do you believe uh, we, we are talking really full stack entrepreneurs for, for us to build these kind of companies in the future? You know, I, I think there's no like one model for entrepreneurs, right? There's not a template. Um, and there's phenomenal entrepreneurs have lots of different kinds of backgrounds. But for our tech businesses, to me, there's something about a founder or, or founders, co-founders, that have a very intimate feel for the product or service that they're offering. And it may not be that they're the engineer necessarily, often they are. Um, you know, or they're technical enough to be immersed in that, but they have a real feel for what that experience has to be. And it's, um, you know, and in all these companies that, that we talk about, um, you know, and I'll give you the examples, Atlassian, Slack, Dropbox, Spotify, like, you meet the, the founders of those companies, they are the ones, even today, that set the tone of product direction. Um, and maybe now these companies are bigger, they've hired people to work in product, but I'll tell you one thing at Dropbox, there was no product manager at Dropbox for years because the founders were the product managers. And they knew best the direction they wanted to take it in, the timing of launching different features and different versions of the product, and they wouldn't ship anything until they were happy with it. So, and it's not just engineering, it's design, um, you know, it's, you know, sort of the set of capabilities and how it's presented and, and all those kinds of things all wrapped together that I think are, you know, like to me that what 
what stands out in some of these great, great companies that are global leaders today is that something about that started with the founders and they've retained that over a period of time. And I'll give you, I mean, there's many examples of that. Girish at Freshworks. I mean, he's the best head of product ever, but he's the CEO. And, uh, or, or Frank Wong at DJI. You know, he's still, he's the guy that built the first product. And now, I want to yeah. talk more about DJI. Yeah. How, how did that happen? And then what, what exactly, how is he making this work? That's a phenomenal story, and I think, you know, because, it, and it's, it's an it's a emerging market story, it's not just a China story, but if you, if you think about DJI, it is one of the first, I think it's the first company to come out of China that is not a, uh, not a fast follower, but truly a innovation leader. It's, they, are the, they are the leader and the, the innovator in a new market category. And normally that company comes out of someplace else, right? And I'm going to say the Bay Area or, or maybe Europe. Um, and then we see companies that are more efficient, manufacturing companies, and they can be Chinese companies, but they haven't been the, they weren't the original pioneer of the category. DJI is. And I think it's the first one where you can say they, they lead the category, they by far innovate the fastest, they have the best products, um, and it's a global tech business based in Shenzhen. And, uh, and that's a great story. And I think that what it says to me is that product talent for innovation can start in many parts of the world now. And it doesn't have to just come from one place. And, um, you know, India has some examples that are emerging. And, you know, we've seen some things in, you know, in Europe and Israel historically. but. For a, for a Chinese company to, to lead globally in a new category, and not just by doing better hardware or lower cost or cheaper hardware, but doing a product that's technically complex, has a lot of software, has cloud services, you know, the kind of things that we would say, well, that would come out of Boston or San Francisco or you know, something like that, um, that's coming out of China. I think that's a great story. And we saw that. We, we were really interested in this drone category. And we spent a year, we met every company all over the world. And you know, my sense was, well, wouldn't something that resembles almost like a robotics business and a software business be you know, a Stanford team or an MIT team? Well, it turns out that it's the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology team, right? That started the best company in the category. And we spent a year going to China to make an investment in that company because we felt like they would be the leader. And now they've really you know, in some ways run away with that market. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is that when, I, when you go see that company and you think aspirationally, what do they feel? What do, what do they want to, you know, who do they want to be like? What do they aspire to? They think of Apple. Great hardware products tied in with software. You know, a software hardware integrated experience connected to services. And so, like, if, when you have a DJI product experience, you get this beautifully designed piece of hardware with a controller on a phone, amazing software that's been integrated with it, and it's a full experience. It's not, you know, um, a piecemeal kind of experience. And that's, the, that, the founder had that design ethos from the beginning for that, for that company. So I think it's a phenomenal story, and we'll see what, where, it, where it goes, but it's, um, it's been exciting to watch. Yeah, clearly. Just listening about them is exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, 
other thing which is common i find in most of these stories from dropbox to dji and spotify is that they build products that are bought and consumed across the globe you know in in markets so diverse in terms of language demographics you name it from from what you've seen in these companies what does it take to build a product that the world can understand and buy i mean it's it's other thing to build a product for one market with unique needs but they seem to be beyond that yeah i i think that that we're also at an interesting point in time where um, you know our method of communication is so different today our ability to reach people is different to reach customers is different in how we sell and so every business that starts today has to be thinking in some sense i'm a global player right i mean you know obviously there's companies that are very oriented at domestic markets you know you take a you, know, you take a company that makes something that's it's in india for india for example that's that's a different story but if you're a technology business with a product that has um, global global reach then you don't think about it market by market and like someday i'll go to europe or someday i'll go to latin america or someday i'll go to asia you're global on day one and you know online methods of communicating marketing selling enable you to reach those markets in a way that you never could before so i feel like um in some ways that's an enabler for a company like a dji in china or freshworks in chennai to be global immediately there's no market in india for freshworks right so in some sense it's you know the market for that company is you uh, the the us and emia and you know more traditional enterprise software markets and uh and so if you're in chennai the first thing you have to do is like how do i sell globally you know day one um Atlassian is a great example. It's a company that we invested in. We were the only investor, you know, venture investor in Atlassian, started by two phenomenal guys in Sydney, Australia. And they're selling software. Well, how do you sell software from Sydney? You had to figure out something really new and different and disruptive, and so they were global right right away. So, part of that is, you know, does your product category appeal broadly? And many of these do. And then do you find some unique and differentiated way to get the story out because in in some cases it's a international company from a US perspective an international company that does that because they don't have a choice you know they have to they have to be global um from from the beginning and then they find really different ways to get the word out and uh and think about Alassian or Freshworks they you know they use they use Google advertising and online demand generation and really clever other marketing techniques to build awareness and then they build phenomenal products that people find I and mean, there's in some ways and I say this sometimes like for for companies like that the best salesperson you have in the company is the product that's ultimately what if you can't if the product can't sell itself then you have a really hard time you know in in building a global business and so um Dropbox sold itself. You know, when people use it, they're like, "I get it. It's fantastic." They tell people, yeah, and uh, and and these other companies are are similar in that in that fashion. Uh, the founders that we are talking about, uh, you know, sometimes they sound too good to be true. Like, you know, you 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 think about them, and you, and you wonder, uh, you know, boy, I mean, that sounds like some superhuman being, uh, but they are human beings, right? what have you seen when it comes to 
you know, their ability to scale as human beings in terms of their emotional journeys or, or, or multitasking or things like that. It, it's one thing to have aspiration, capabilities and all, but as you scale, grow, your ability as a human to, you know, do these things also gets challenged. So, so what's there? Well, it's, it, it's, a, it's a great question because think about, a, a, you know, a company that starts with two people and then now has 1,500 people or 2,000 people. And what you did when you started the company and what you needed to do is totally different than what you're doing today, right, as a, as a CEO. And maybe the way to encapsulate, I talked to one of my founders one time and he was running the company like a founder. Um, very inspirational, really... Uh, in some ways, very collegial with everybody and incredibly well-liked, but lacking a little bit of just the discipline to run a company that was much bigger and had to be much more performance-oriented to be a great company. And he took a little time and came back and then and I told him, I said, uh, I took a little break and then he came back. And I told him, I said, when you come back, you have to come back as the CEO, not the founder. And, when, and he did. And then he, and, he, and it, the, per, the difference was very perceptible. It was now, you know, the leadership qualities, where are we going, building my team, but, you know, really enabling them, but holding them accountable. I'm not everybody's best friend. I'm approachable, I'm not everybody's best friend. We're really here to go accomplish something. And um, he became a great CEO. And I think what has to happen for a lot of these founders, they are extraordinary, but they're humans, you're right. And they have gaps, and they're missing some things. But what has to happen along the way is they have to grow as their company evolves and grows. And they grow from being the entrepreneur founder in the garage to now running maybe a public company. And, uh, and the journey of that growth for them often comes with the realization that they have to continue to learn and adapt and evolve and that they're not, they don't know everything yet. And what you find in those people is that they surround themselves with great mentors and advisors. They build a great board. They listen incredibly well, but they don't always follow the advice. They still use their own judgment. But, and, and they understand that they, they understand that they don't know everything. They know what they don't know. And then they go find ways to learn that, or they surround themselves with great management who can fill some of those gaps. And I think in all of these companies that I've seen where these founders have grown into becoming great CEOs, they've made that transition. And, uh, and when you look at the teams, the teams are incredibly good and they've found people, they've recruited people, maybe in some ways they had no right to be able to recruit, but they bring them in because they are, they're inspirational and they can do some of the things that the founder can't do, and they build a great sort of relationship and trust and rapport with them. And so I think, I think that's a big part of it. And not everybody makes that journey. I mean, like these companies that we reference, these founders have done that. And and I think there's no, there's no harm in understanding that sometimes maybe that's not the skill set of the founder, and you can, you can bring someone to help you with that and still have, an incredible role in the company whether it's around product, you know, or being customer facing, uh, or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of people that have had, and great founders of companies, you know, phenomenal founders that have been able to go on and bring in the CEO that was ultimately the CEO of the company when they were public. But 
But I think in, in your case, or your question relates to what, like, what is it about these founders? And it's like, they have their flaws, plenty of them, and all those things, but they understand, I think they understand themselves better. They improve themselves, and on the things that they don't do well, they're not afraid to go get people that are great, better than them at that, and bring them in. That's an important point. Please have your team. People also talk about uh, founders' mentality and why it's important for some of the most successful companies, whether founder stays or grows, whether we have a professional as a CEO. Uh, how much uh, of weightage would you give to, to that original founder's mentality uh, in, in the growth of the companies uh, in, in long term? how important it is or, or are we making too much about it? I mean, you look at Jeff Bezos stays at Amazon or Mark Zuckerberg. These, these are outliers in that sense, but how much of weightage would you give to that original founder's mentality? Yeah, I think, look, there's, um, and some of that is that there's, there's certain types of companies where it's really critical. Um, and we are very, we're very, emotionally attached to founders because we start with these companies when it's just the founders. Like this, like I'm, I, I'm, I've worked with companies where the, it's the two founders and me and we all hire the first employee. So um, you, have a, you have a personal attachment and a real desire to make them successful in their personally and their business and you know, everything that they're sort of aspiring to. And, and um, you know, but I think also there's a that has to be complemented with the responsibility to try to build the best company we can build. And it, and if the founder is better served to bring someone in, then I'm never gonna be shy about giving that advice. Um, but my first preference is to try to build an amazing company and help that founder grow into the, the role. And, you know, a lot of that is bringing the right people around a founder and, uh, and, and, and helping them in that fashion. But there's something about the fact that if you go down the list of really amazing, like the, the companies that you admire the most and look at them all, the founder is there. And, um, and I feel like you can never really replace the fact that the founder is always the spiritual core or center of that business. And there's something about that that gets lost when the founder isn't taking that business forward in some role, um, because they're the ones that have the original vision, the most passion for it, the most insight into it. And that ultimately um, does get lost uh, somewhere along the way. But I go, you go up the list, and how long was Bill Gates the CEO of Microsoft, Jeff Bezos Amazon, Larry Ellison still at Oracle, right? Market, Facebook, you know, Scott and Mike at Atlassian, Drew and Dropbox, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, right? Daniel at Spotify. It's, um, it, and it goes on and on and on. Now, I can point to other examples of, of phenomenal companies. You take Palo Alto Networks in, in security, and, you know, and the founder is brilliant, and they brought in a fantastic CEO, right? And, and, but, you know, clearly that's his company, he drives it. You know, I, I, think, I think there's different ways to accomplish it, but, um, but you see that the special, special companies, you know, <laughs> they're there. How about Apple? Like, I, I mean, Apple, post Steve Apple, Steve comes back to Apple, 
<laughs> what can you say, right? Yeah. I think it, it, it's also sometimes because as human beings, we, we love uh, hero worshipping or whatever you call it, right? We also want to believe in the stories where you have this, this founder who is there fighting all the odds. It is clearly more inspiring than uh, you know, a mercenary CEO yeah. uh, in, in charge uh, trying to, yeah. We love those stories. Yeah. And, and as venture capitalists, we love to make those, like, play a teeny part in making that story. And, and I'm very happy when those stories come out. Like, I don't feel like our role in that should really ever needs to be discussed. You know, if we somewhere along the way help them and they appreciated that we were there for them through that whole journey, it kind of professionally rewards us and personally. Um, but I love seeing those stories. Like that's that's what makes that's why we started with this. That's why this what we do is so exciting because we can go back and say, I remember when we started with the two of you and look at it today, and that was incredible. And you did that. <laughs> yeah. Wow, it's been thirty-two minutes. <laughs> the companies that we are talking about, especially the ones that you closely worked with from Dropbox to Spotify. <clears throat> Now, there must have been some near-death experiences like you were referring to, uh, where things were not going anywhere and they either pivoted or, you know, some iterative uh, innovation or whatever. What are the key lessons from, from those moments when, when they're almost about to die? Uh, what makes them or make, made them see the light that we are watching today? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, companies do have near-death experiences. I, you know, sometimes it's, uh, the, the way I think about this is um, there's like a, a cycle of, or a progression for a lot of these companies. They, you, they get going. In the beginning, it's hard, and they try a bunch of things, and something works, and it takes off. And then it seems incredible, like, no, like nothing can stop you. And then... You know, you realize that, okay, it, it's working, but building a management team, scaling, continue to innovate on product, hiring great people, like all those things have become really hard. And, uh, you know, more competitors, more attention on you. Um, and it invariably stuff frays at the edges and starts to break. And you have to grow up as a business and grow up as a leader in these companies. And, and, um, and then what seem like nothing could go wrong becomes nothing can go right. And it gets frustrating. Um, and I think if you just, sometimes you have to zoom out and say, it's never as good as you think it is, and it's never as bad as you think it is. And if you kind of have that mindset and you sort of still think about big picture, what are we trying to accomplish? And then it's just a question of taking steps along the way and knocking things off the list. That it's tenacity and perseverance ultimately and a belief in what you're trying to do that makes it possible and sort of la not being afraid of just hard work along the way. These are, these are not easy things to go do. And I think that's why entrepreneurs and these founders, you know, are outliers for you, right? Mm -hmm. Or originals for us is that they don't, they, they don't get daunted by that. Most people would find that to be insurmountable. And, um, you know, they, they just are relentless about continuing on, even in the face of a lot of challenges where it's easy to, maybe it's easy to sell the company and be done. And, you know, um, you know, 
maybe you get tired, maybe maybe you get frustrated, but uh, they manage to see their way through. And then you realize, like again, it's not as bad as you thought. And but you merge on the other side, and you realize I have a real business here, and and uh, I have an amazing team, and we can do this. We've got through one period, now we can get through the next one, and that next challenging period. And so I think there's some of that, and and what I feel like is a good thing sometimes for these founders is if you if they um, you know, if they surrounded themselves with, with a good mentor advisor and there's a strong board and investor group and they have a, you know, they're not, they don't panic either. They've seen this before. They don't panic. Just gives them a steady, you know, calming influence of like, okay, let's just break this down and we can, we can solve it one at a time and we can get there. And, uh, and then I think you get through those, you get the, through those moments. So I'm like, it's hard to give like one piece of advice, but but I do think it comes down to, um, you know, just ultimately realizing it's it's really not gonna it's never gonna be easy it's never gonna be that good and it, nor that bad and you know it's if you believe in what you're ultimately trying to accomplish then maybe you have to just reset for a second take it's take a step back and recalibrate and then continue down the path and and uh, um, you know if you're if you sort of follow your conviction I think you know a lot of the right things ultimately happen but um, yeah I think it's 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 always interesting to see people how they deal with those challenging situations and uh, you know how they emerge um, but you know when you go through one of those they emerge stronger more experienced, confident, and then it becomes maybe not easier, but they know they can do it the next time. Mm. So you've <laughs> been, I mean, you have also sat in the situation rooms. <laughs> it's not just the front row seat, right? I have, and, and I think that's, what, that's part of it, and people have said that to me before, too, is like, you know, it's like they feel like it's really scary or perilous or whatever, and it can be, and you can have... You can have people around you panicking, or you can have people that distill it down to, okay, what's really important here, and let's just figure out how we're going to work through it. And so do you want people around you that panic, or do you want people around you that have been through it and can be a calm voice when everybody else is losing their head, right? So I think that's a, uh, you know, that's a big part of it. It doesn't have to be me, but it, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's how you think about surrounding yourself with the right people as a, as a founder. Final question. <laughs> I know we brought time, but uh, <clears throat> sometimes these uh, the ability of these founders to deal with these situations and coming out strongly uh, can also be misleading in in the sense that founders also don't give up; they don't let go. How would they know when to actually give up or move on? It's this is a great question because. Everything I just said makes it sound like you should just keep going all the time, right? But I feel like um, one of the roles that we play, if we're if we're, if we're gonna be really great partners in a business, you know, um, sometimes what I'll tell people is um, I had this conversation with one of our, uh, you know, another company, um, which was the same idea. I started with the two founders and and. Uh, the CEO asked me, he's like, you know, what, how long should I be the CEO? And, and, or, and I said, well, 
I think what you want from me is the day I think you can't do the job, you should want me to tell you that, as a, in my opinion, right? Like, wouldn't you want to know that? And, and then it's sort of my responsibility to say, here's my view on whether you can do this or not, or whether we should do, make, a, make a change. And I think he appreciated that. He said, okay, now I'm gonna have somebody that's gonna be intellectually honest on this board, right? And not just tell me what I wanna hear, but push me. And I view it as like, I'm not, I can't, I shouldn't tell you what to do, but I should challenge you in your thinking. And then you're the CEO and you will decide what you wanna go do. But can I press something here or persuade here Offer a suggestion you hadn't thought about. Test your thinking. Is it you know? Is it really you know? Is it really critical thinking or is it vague or thin? And you know that's the kind of dynamic you want. And then ultimately, what I find when that works is that people will call and say, "I would love your input on something or advice on something." And then we work together. You know, and I think that's the relationship we try to bring. Long way of saying, if I get to that point, or if I think we can get to that point with somebody, if it's time to do something different, then uh, I will always say that as my opinion. And, um, you know, then at least they've heard it and they can decide what they want to go do. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, it's sort of our responsibility to go do that. And that's happened too. So, I mean, not only many of these businesses, most don't work. And so at some point you have to say, here are all the reasons why I think we, when we started this, we thought these would be true, and some of these assumptions are not true, and therefore, this is the challenge we're going to face. And maybe the opportunity isn't what we thought it was, or it's um, or it's it's diminished, or there is no opportunity. And let's again, let's be intellectually honest about it, and have a plan forward. And sometimes in those situations, that company didn't work, but it was very appreciated that we were honest and constructive and I actually ended up investing in the same founder again because they liked that interaction before and the second one worked so you never know right it's a long we have a long relationships in this business thanks I really enjoyed talking to you thank you thank you thanks this so was much. fun